will you allow us to keep a portion of the placenta again to use for our research purposes at this university hospital? For Tom Cruise, you mean? Yeah, for Tom Cruise. He's in the back <laughs> and he's hungry. Hello, I'm Justin. I'm Mark. We're the J-Pops. And we are attempting parenting in Japan. And this is the hugest of all episodes yet. This is massive. We've got big news to talk about today, and that's because one of us, namely me, has officially become a J-Pop. A true J-Pop. Congratulations, sir. Ooh, give it up. Yes. <laughs> We've got a uh, real live baby between nice. the two of us now. We've got one. And um, that all happened from this recording about 36 hours ago. So mm. we're in like day two of this baby's life. He was born on February 10th. Uh, this was a Thursday. Nice. Yeah, I thought today we could go through sort of the play-by-play of how that went down, what all happened. Yeah, definitely. I'm curious to hear all of your experience going in and out of the hospital so first, I should say that uh, everyone's healthy and doing very well. And um, it's amazing because you've got this list in your mind of concerns, you know, and those For concerns sure. cannot be addressed until the baby's just out there. So any number of things could go haywire. Uh, there could be any number of complications. The C-section itself is a big ordeal, you know, big operation. You don't want anything to go crazy there. And then only when it happens... You answer a thousand questions and then like in our case, you really, really hope that the answer to all those questions is it's all fine. Mm. And then that happens, but there's no way to get around those until the moment comes. So I would say the biggest feeling right now is relief, you know, relief that everything's smooth and then you can just like take it easy. Yeah. Um, Even if you're not preoccupied day to day and like worrying all the time, there's still a lot of question marks that get erased once the birth actually happens. So that's good. And the baby's absolutely fine. I'll give you the key stats. He was 3,024 grams, which equates to six pounds, 11 ounces. That's a little low, right? It's a little bit on the light side, but it was a C-section that was scheduled about two weeks before the due date. So he's a bit early. And, um, I think that accounts for his kind of lightweight status. He was 49 and a half centimeters, which equates to like 19 and a half inches. Is that normal? Uh, it's within the range, I think. I don't know the exact range, but um, oh, he okay. was, yeah, he was right in there. He was fine. Um, nice. The doctor in the final ultrasound, like a couple of days before, he said that, uh, you know, we were at 37 weeks and the doctor said he's got the legs of a, a 40 week pregnancy. So this baby's <laughs> legs were long and uh, he was, he was yeah. flexing. I hear, I hear that comment from Moe's ultrasound appointments every oh, week yeah. as well. <laughs> About just the legs or the overall size? <laughs> the legs specifically. The legs. <laughs> wow. Yeah. I don't know what it was about our guy and his long legs, but nice. Um, I said, you know, based on the legs, this kid is ready to come out. He's ready to go. Uh, and I briefly entertained the idea of naming him Wilt uh, for Wilt Chamberlain, naturally. Nice. Um, but uh, I, I <laughs> decided against it at the last minute. Uh, but yeah, this long-legged baby was uh, born by C-section early in the morning. Well, not too early. You know, business hour early, about mm. 9 or 9.30 um, on February 10th. All fine. 
Um, and like I was saying before, there are those thousands of questions that you have. And right. the answer to literally all of the questions was, it is fine. Everything's mm. fine. No trouble whatsoever. Perfect. And uh, they even they had me look at a report that they had written up and I had to sign it, uh, I guess, to confirm that the doctor had you know covered the uh, discussion of the delivery with me. And the report had four lines and one said, the baby was delivered successfully. That's line one. That's good news. <laughs> yep. And then uh, the next line said, um, uh, during the C-section, an average amount of blood was lost. <laughs> so I guess you're expecting some blood. You know, there's going to be some bleeding. It's a big incision. Uh, but it was the average amount. So okay. nothing crazy there. Uh, the next line said, it was a boy. And so we got that covered. And, okay, um, good. Yeah, another line had the weight, which I mentioned, the 3,000... Uh, 24 grams. So wow. that was it. That was the entire report from the C-section. I signed my name at the bottom and they it's, sent me on my way. It sounds so brief for a Japanese report. Like I was expecting like you to say there was a couple pages. Yeah. Well, I think maybe what happened is that this was in English, by the way. Oh, and wow. Yeah. I think that, well, they, that that's why there's brevity. Exactly. <laughs> I'm sure there was a lot on the cutting room floor. Uh, I mean, the Japanese version must have been mm. a bit more detailed, but they wanted to debrief me. So um, they went the extra mile and wrote it up in English and then came and then sort of read it to me line by line. That's pretty and, cool. Yeah, it was very nice of them to do. And um, I but they kept a copy and I had to sign my name and it felt mm. somewhat official. Nice. Um, but anyway, so that's the. That's the big news out of the way is that the, the child was born and then uh, my wife is totally fine. Baby's totally fine. Another no news is good news scenario here. Yep. So got to rewind the clock back to Monday. This was February 7th. Uh, as I was talking about before, for coronavirus prevention measures, you have to go in about three days early. Mm. Monday morning, I forget the time, let's say 8 a.m., 8.30 a.m., something like that. My wife and I turn up to the hospital to check her in three days ahead of the C-section. And her parents are there as well. Uh, they want oh, nice. to you know, see her off because she's going to be sort of locked down in the hospital for 10 days. It's like she's going on a vacation or something. Right. Um, and uh, you're not going to see her for a while. So uh, her parents you know, wanted to wish her well. And we took some photos, like a few selfies and got... Uh, well, we had to go take a PCR test. My wife did. I did not. Um, mm, okay. Then we have to wait around for an hour and a half while the PCR processes. And during that time, we met with a doctor. He explained the C-section procedure to us. And we signed six, seven, eight documents at that point. Um, mm. Because it's a, a university hospital, they do things for instructional purposes. So some oh, of these right. documents were release forms. Like uh, there's a camera in the ceiling and we're going to videotape the C-section, but just zoomed in only on the, the belly. Wow. Can, will you allow us to use that footage for you know, educational purposes? And another one was, um, will you allow us to keep a portion of the placenta again to use for our research purposes at this university hospital? For Tom Cruise, you mean? Yeah, for Tom Cruise. He's in the back <laughs> and he's hungry. Uh, Got to keep him happy. So we had to sign off on these things. And then there's just general release forms and that sort of thing. Do you have to sign them or were you guys electing to? Um, you're basically electing to. Okay. And you guys were cool with that. Yeah. Um, I did ask out of curiosity. They're filming the C-section. Do we have access to that video? 
because, you know, we're authorizing you to use it. Can we also have it? And they said, oh, no, no, no. <laughs> so that was just off off limits. They don't give it out on a personal basis, I guess. I don't know I the might reason. Have said no, then. Yeah, it crossed my mind. <laughs> fine. But I'm all about that education. And um, I said, you know, let it go. That's fine. I don't care. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, yeah, keeping the placenta, I, it's fine. Go for it, guys. So I trust them. But uh, yeah, we signed a few things. Then we sat around and waited a while longer. PCR tests was passed. I walked her up to the fifth floor. I mean, took the elevator. But uh, <laughs> then right outside the elevators, there's a table sort of on either side, kind of blocking off the you know people just passing through freely. And that's kind of the, that's like the roadblock so that unauthorized personnel don't walk willy-nilly into the, right. that floor of the hospital. So uh, that's where we parted ways. And my wife took her suitcase and pushed it beyond the table. And I got back in the elevator and went away. Wow. That was, it was all fine. It was relatively smooth. We didn't have to abandon ship with a positive PCR test and like, you know, suddenly fly off to another hospital. So that was good. And good. we felt like it was all smooth sailing. Got a few messages through the afternoon and that's when the story takes a turn, because unfortunately, we learned in the afternoon that my wife's grandfather passed away the same morning that she was checking into the hospital. Man, that's crazy. Yeah. So, I mean, just a lot of phone calls had to be made and a lot of things had to be figured out um, mm. in terms of funeral arrangements and who can attend, who can't attend and, and this sort of thing. Uh, the grandfather is a very, very sweet man. I've known him for, you know, 15 years. He lives here in town, so we would see him pretty frequently. Nice. And um, I talked to him, you know, over the years, and he's like always with a smile on his face, always saying positive stuff to everybody, and just hmm. a friendly, great grandpa, you know. He's a great guy. Nice. And uh, But he'd been in and out of the hospital in the last couple of years, had some health trouble, and then, you know, just happened to pass away that same morning that my wife went in. This threw a big uh, monkey wrench into the the plans, basically. Um, my wife then wanted to go to the visitation, uh, let's mm-hmm. call it. I don't know what the exact term for it is in Japanese, but there's sort of a service um, before the funeral, you know, a day before. And my wife wanted to see her grandfather, but she was like sort of locked right. down in the hospital. Is this at a funeral home or is this at their home home? It's uh, in a funeral home. Okay. Yeah. Uh, My wife wanted to go to that. She spoke to the doctors at the hospital. They said, okay, you can go. The plan is you need to come into contact with as few people as possible. So can you contact the funeral home and get in a bit before, maybe a bit after, and uh, go to a visitation by yourself, like in off hours? Yeah. So the arrangements were made. The funeral home agreed. So I went to the hospital on Tuesday to pick her up and took her to the funeral home. And it was essentially a private visitation, but, you know, it's a big funeral home. There's a lot going on. So there were still people around. And a lot of my wife's family was already there because it was just, say, half an hour before the actual visitation was supposed to start. So they were all sort of in like a family room off to the back and we like popped in and said hi to them. But then when we went into the main room, they allowed us to walk up on sort of the stage. Uh, If you go to a Japanese funeral, you'll notice that there's a bit of a platform, like a little, it reminds me of an auditorium, like in an elementary school or something, just a bit smaller than a full scale auditorium. 
a little stage and then a lot of flowers arranged up there. And then the, the casket in this case was behind all of that. And we sort of walked uh, back deep into the stage hmm. and had a little viewing um, that is not standard, I guess. It's not what normally happens. Gotcha. So that was nice. Uh, my wife could see her grandfather that one last time. We stayed there for just 10 or 15 minutes, got back in the car. She went back to the hospital. They strangely allowed her to go back to her room, and then she did a PCR test the next morning. So she got in, and then PCR oh, okay. test came later. So we didn't have to wait. I don't know right. what the reasoning was for this rule being a bit bent, but that's how it shook out. Huh. So then we're up to Wednesday, and this is the day of the funeral, and... Um, I was sort of on deck to attend this funeral. I, I would have anyway, but especially because my wife was out of the picture back in the hospital, you know, the day before the delivery. Um, then right. I went sort of as the representative from our little section of the family. And um, this was my first time being this close to the immediate family at a Japanese funeral. I've been to loads of funerals in the past, hmm. but I've always just been like a coworker or friend or something. This time I was kind of in there. So it was like quite a small service, maybe just 15, 20 people, sort of immediate family members. Mm. Uh, I guess we can get into the Japanese funeral details. One thing, I mean, there's a lot of chanting, uh, and I think it's more or less a eulogy, but it's built into a chant. Like a Buddhist chant style? Yeah, exactly. Like a, a monotone okay. chant that goes on for minute after minute, but they're sprinkling in gotcha. personal details about the, the deceased. So things that he enjoyed doing, his name, and then, you know, I'm sure that there are some also sort of like funerary rites and things like that that are built into it as well. But they're chanting all of this and you just sort of chill and listen to it. And then um, they sort of wheel the body down from the stage. They have an enormous number of flowers, like cut flowers in trays. And at Hmm. one point you pick up handfuls of these flowers and lay them in the casket so that the the body's in there and then it's just, I mean, hundreds and hundreds of flowers covering every free space in the casket except for the face. Wow. And it's everybody, the little children and, and everyone gets up there and just, I, you know, probably put 15 or 20 flowers just like dropping them here and there just to fill up the casket. Hmm. Uh, that happened. And then, of course, uh, I find that Japanese events often have a moment that is supposed to be sort of like a really touching like climax for the event. Um, at a wedding, I would say this is the moment when the bride reads the letter that she's written to her parents and the spotlights on her. And, you know, it's like a very, very touching, emotional, like right at the end of the hmm. wedding ceremony. And at funerals, they do this as well, that um, somebody from the immediate family will stand up and speak. And after, you know, the whole service and everybody's been sort of sniffling and crying. And then you get this really like touching speech. So that's very sad. Uh as you would imagine. Wow. So only one person from the family is like allowed to speak or is it just like that's how it works? Just one person typically does I it. I think you could bend the rules if you wanted to. In the funerals that I've been to, one person sort of represents the immediate family and speaks to everyone. Okay. Interesting. I imagine that you wouldn't get a lot of takers if you were like, do you want to talk? Hey, how about you? How about you? You know, it's probably just one person shoulders the responsibility of doing that. That's always right. been my sense of it. Man, super different from America. Yeah. I What I like about the American style is that the officiant is there and he's a little bit dispassionate. You know, he's got that distance so he can keep his composure right. or she and then sort of like lead everybody through it. And then if you're the family member and you're totally falling apart, 
then you can do that off to the side or in the back or yeah. you can leave the room or whatever if you can't get through it. In Japan, they they want to see it. They need to see that. Like, uh, it sounds bad, but they it's built in to have that emotion front and center. And gotcha. so like the catharsis is up there sort of on display for everybody. I can't oh. imagine if I'm ever in that position. I'm not good with loss and I wouldn't be able to hack it. I'm terrible. Yeah, I'm with you there. Yeah, I would not be able to give that speech. That and my innate fear of public speaking, <laughs> yeah. would, that might also make maybe me they, would, <laughs> they might cancel each other out and you'll find a hidden talent. You'll oh, be wowing maybe. them at the funeral. <laughs> For me, it's just, I'm also not one of these people. You see people cry sometimes and then they just sort of talk mm. through the cry and then just with a sniff here and there or the voice gets a little wavery, but they continue and they soldier through it. I can't do that. If mm. I'm that sad, <laughs> then I'm like, ah, ah, you know, <laughs> I'm like, uh, just a wreck. And it's, it's horrible. So when that time comes yeah. for me, I mean, hopefully I'll die before anyone I know and love. And then I have to do it. That's my only out at this point. My only well, out. Being Americans in Japan, the odds are. Yeah, that's us. true. Everybody's got 20 <laughs> or 30 years on us life expectancy wise. Absolutely. Yeah. So um, anyway, I, I dread that time for me, but uh, I mean, for the many reasons you should dread that time for yourself. But uh, anyway, that happened. And then what occurs next is you load the casket into a, a hearse, at least at this funeral home. I'm sure it's different right. in different places. The hearse, by the way, was a Chrysler. I was like, Chrysler? I don't think I've seen a Chrysler in years. I've never, I, I've never seen a Chrysler yeah, here. And finally, I see a Chrysler, and it's like their hearse. Okay, maybe that's they have to import those. I guess the Toyota hearse doesn't exist. But um, huh. anyway, yeah, they load them in the back of a Chrysler, and then uh, and it's not just a regular. I mean, it's a hearse. You know, it's not just like a an American yeah. station wagon. But they put them in there. They drive them down the streets, and this is walking distance. It's just you know. 300 feet 400 feet and uh mm. he goes to the crematorium i've never right. been inside a crematorium before so we all walk over there to the crematorium and the thing about the crematorium everything is marble and i don't think it's like a foot thick mm. it's probably like a you know just a marble covering over whatever the wall is but sure. it's floor to ceiling everything is like this cold looking marble you know i guess it's a fire hazard so you want to you want to make the crematorium uh flame retardant if at all possible that's my advice yeah that makes so, sense so uh, they've got this uh fireproof crematorium building and uh they wheel the body into one room and uh, some things are said some more chanting and there are pictures and things and they wheel the body then into another room and it's got a bank of eight doors and they look like elevator doors they're uh numbered hmm. one through eight they're these metal doors that are really ornate and um one of the doors opened they wheel the casket in there and then you realize oh it is kind of an elevator and it's an elevator that's going to take the the casket and the body down to the incinerator and so um they wheel the body in you really say your last goodbye everybody's like sniffing like crazy and uh crying a bit and then the doors close and then you hear this big mechanical like whirring noise and you know oh okay it's it's going somewhere like it's kind of sinking down i guess and hmm. then they tell you 70 minutes from now um you'll do the next thing so take a 70 minute break and they put you in a, a sort of nice room with all these cushiony sofas and chairs and tables and they uh have wow. their staff come in and take drink orders 
Um, there are a lot of snacks and you just hang out and chat with the family. It's a lot like an American funeral, I guess, in that regard. There's always a room with food off to hmm. the side. Yeah. We chilled in there. Uh, there's also a window on the back and it's like floor to ceiling window at the back half of the room. Um, and it looks out on a pond that's like a very well done Japanese garden. So that's your view is this really hmm. nice natural setting. It had snowed. So it's like lovely snow covering everything. The pond was frozen over and it kind of goes up the hillside. So it's a really beautiful like what you would hope for in that kind of uh, situation, that serene view. The 70 minutes are up, and what happens next is, this is a classic Japanese thing, you go into another room, another sort of marble-walled crematorium room, and the ashes and skeleton of the recently cremated person is on a big metal slab in the middle of that room. It's (laughs) very hot in there to begin with, and it's yeah. still smoking, like the ashes are still smoking a bit. And wow, all along uh, the sides of that metal slab, well, it's actually in a little, um, like a half wall of marble is all the way around it. On that half wall of marble, there are maybe seven or eight sets of chopsticks. And these are heavy duty hmm. chopsticks, not quite twice as long as regular, but big wooden thick chopsticks. And there's a box that I would estimate is about a foot by a foot by a foot, a wooden box. And you have to, with the chopsticks, pick up all of the bones and put them in the box. It takes a bit of time because there's a lot of bones and also the cremation process really desiccates everything. And the mm. bones will sort of break and fragment. And so it's it doesn't look like a skeleton, but you can see portions of this and that bone and recognize it. But it's a lot like it's broken right. up and sort of, uh, you know, fallen apart a bit. So you have to pick hmm. all that up uh, with these chopsticks. And everybody just gets in there. There are, I think, 15 people in the room in the immediate family. We all picked up the chopsticks and took turns. And you pick up, you know. Uh, five, six, seven bones, and then pass the chopsticks off to somebody else. Uh, then they do a few, they'll pass them back to you, and you do a little, sort of bit by bit. Gotcha. This is the instance, I'm sure you know the Japanese um, like table manner thing about not handing something chopstick to chopstick. It's one of those right. things, like if you pick up a piece of chicken or something, then you can't just pass yeah. that directly to another person's chopsticks from your own. But this instance with the bones is the only time you're allowed to touch chopsticks in that way. I think hmm. the reason it's taboo at the dinner table is because it's only like a death ritual thing. And so if you need to, you know, like pick up some larger bone with somebody else and like both of you do it, or if you're, you know, passing the bone to someone who's closer to the box or something like that, all of that's allowed. And that's right. why it's not allowed at dinner, I think. Hmm. That makes sense. Yeah. It's, uh, and there's also the, um, you know, chopsticks vertically standing up in the rice. That's another sort of death thing right. that you're not allowed to do. It's done it at a part of the funeral service. You'll see chopsticks vertically. But anyway, so we go through the bones. We're putting them in. Um, kind of interesting point was there's a magnet because the casket itself is put together with these little like sort of uh, brads or these little nails. And so they wave Mm. the magnet over the ashes to pull all the nails and like little bits of wire and stuff that were maybe in the clothes or whatever. And uh, they put those off to the side. Then there are little rakes um, and little sort of like little bamboo brooms, I would say. And there are these metal dust pans and you sweep up the ash and then you dump the ash in the box. And finally you get it all cleaned up into this like one foot cube box and they put the lid on it. And, um, 
put a nice cover over it, and then you take it out of the room. So hmm. that takes probably, I don't know, 15 minutes, something like that, 20 minutes. Wow. Yeah. So the family does all the ash preparation and everything. Really, the crematorium just lights the fire and that's it. Yeah. I mean, they have a lot of staff floating around, and um, there's a guy in there with you. Uh, when you're doing it all but he just sort of instructs you what to do and he kind of takes the steps like once you've finished he's like okay you've finished and then he carries the box over and wraps it up and you know he's like okay now you take this and you carry this and let's go over here so you've got a guy with you the whole Hmm. time but yeah you're doing uh, most of it yourself Hmm. i guess the things that shocked me about that um most i mean for one i had never been like around the bones like that like actual human bones i guess i've never actually seen in my life uh but that was the least sad part of the entire funeral was the actual bone removal. Huh. The reasoning I think is that there's such a task that has to be done. You know, like everybody's right. like set to doing something. And the second part of it is that it, the person is unrecognizable at that point. You can see bits right. that you recognize. Like you'll notice the jaw is in the jaw shape or you'll see like, um, you know, the eye socket, you notice a circular hole in some bone. Yeah. I was going to ask if the skull was still, like there and intact or it's where, but I guess not. Well, it's like, it's where you would expect it to be. Um, you know, it's at the, obviously at the head of the metal slab, but it's sort of fallen mm. apart and flattened down a bit, but you notice that it's these big, bigger sheets right. of sort of curved sections of bone. So you know what it was. Right. Yeah. I don't know how like far into detail it's appropriate to get, but I noticed like one of the femurs was still fully intact but then like smaller huh. bones might just turn into dust. So gotcha. The other thing that, well, in that room, the things that kind of shocked me, one, um, it was the, the bones that give you a sense of the person's look like that jaw or the, the eye, you know, like the eye socket, mm-hmm. you would think like, Oh yeah, yeah. His jaw looked like that jaw. You know, I, I get that. And, um, then that's a little bit, you know, it connects you to the person more and it's more shocking for that reason. Um, also that the kids participate in it and there were a couple of kids Hmm. in there and who were, I think like around say six, seven, eight years old. And they took their turn with the chopsticks, picked up bones, dropped them in the box and, uh, they were just right in there. Wow. Yeah. Weren't held back from it at all. So that's part of the practice, I suppose. And, uh, it was very hot in the room at, at the start. Um, and then I think breathing in the hot like really dry air. Mm. My throat was sore for the rest of the day. I was like wheezing and coughing until late that night. And it was just being in that room in that sort of dry atmosphere. So that kind of surprised me too. But then you take the box of ashes, you go to another room um, and you do a bit more ceremony and it feels more funerally in the Western sense. You know, um, somebody reads something, there's chanting, Uh, Somebody, again, gives sort of a closing, like, you know, thank you for coming, and then you take off. So Hmm. that was my Wednesday. Who who gets to take the ashes at that point? Is it, like, just up to the family to decide how they're stored and who gets what, or is there, like, a certain place where they're kept? I left the area, so I didn't see the box of ashes taken by anyone in particular, but most families will have a family gravestone. I'm sure you can picture that Japanese gravestone that's got sort of a big like cube shaped base and then maybe like a tall column, uh, all like sort of a marble or granite or whatever the material is. Mm -hmm. And those uh, generally have it's hidden, but you can move pieces around and it's hollow inside. 
and it's hollow right. so that you can slide in boxes of ash like that. So I'm not sure mm. who is like the caretaker of the ash in the interim, but eventually those ashes will be put into the family gravestone that we've been visiting for a long, long time. It's It's been around for a while. So um, gotcha. he'll go in there at some point. Hmm. Yeah. So in a crazy, crazy turn of events, that was literally Wednesday morning dealing with the bones of the cremated relative. And then Thursday morning was the birth of my first child and just sandwiched together like that uh, within what an emotional week and literally 24 hours of each other. So um, that was pretty wild to have those. I mean, either of those experiences would have been sort of the wildest thing of my year, my five years, you know, and then they just happened to fall on back to back days like that bit wild. I felt bad because my wife couldn't go to her grandfather's funeral and, uh, you know, she got to see right. him, but she didn't go through the, all the steps and all the services. So um, one thing that they do, there's so many flowers involved. Uh, and at the end, they'll take flowers and then sort of wrap them into different bouquets. And just like anything in Japan, you know, you give money at a wedding. You also give money at a funeral. And then there's that sort of obligation of a return present. So when you leave the funeral, you get a bag or you might get like some coupons for something or depending on how much you gave or what stage of the funeral you go to. So this time I got a bag and there's like a really nice meal, like a bento box in there. Uh, And some of the flowers from the funeral itself have been wrapped up into a bouquet and you take home this bouquet of flowers. So um, I took these and I got home and then I sort of separated them into a few vases, vases. uh, And (laughs) then I thought, well, this was in the afternoon or evening. And the next day my wife was going to go in for the C-section. And I thought this could be nice. I'll take a little flower, not one of the ones that signified death, but one of the, uh, (laughs) like I think the chrysanthemum is the flower, the funerary flower of Japan. And so I chose another one, Mm. like a cute little yellow flower. Then the next morning I went to meet my wife before the C-section just to like see her off into the C-section. And uh, I gave Mm. her the little flower saying like, this is from your grandpa. This is, you know, your grandpa saying good luck and gambare. So um, I felt like hopefully that was a nice little bridge between the funeral missing, you know, and then going into the C-section like that. Yeah, the whole process sounds like very cathartic, like having to deal with all the ashes and the bones and go through the stages of everything. And it seems to be much faster here, Mm. like two days. Yeah, it was. That's crazy fast. Passed away on a Monday, visitation on Tuesday, funeral and cremation on the Wednesday. So by lunchtime Wednesday, it was all finished. Yeah, that's crazy. And it may be different in different cases. I'm not sure, but. That's how this one worked out. But I think it is cathartic. And I think it's, um, I feel like in Japan, there might be a little bit more of a get in there and really experience it for yourself attitude. Whereas in the US, it's like I was saying before, if you can't keep your composure, then by all means, stand off to the side or go to the back or do what you feel is right. But in Japan, it's like, it's not what you feel is right. It's what you must do now. And um, you Mm. just sort of have to get through it. And so there's a lot to be said for that. I think it's, it seems odd from the Western perspective, but uh, you know, you could list hundreds of things that seem odd from one country when looking at another country. For sure. And if you put all of those into one basket, I would say that maybe America is odder than Japan is, you know, depending on how you 
<laughs> calibrate your judgment of these things. Yeah. But um, anyway, it is one of the, it's just so different for sure. Yeah, for sure. To get back to the baby though, I'm kind of surprised to hear that you were allowed to see Ayumi the day of the C-section. Yeah. Like before she went in. This was all pretty heavily scheduled. Um, they were giving me exact times. So basically I would be on the first okay. floor in the lobby or there's a you know a little coffee shop and I, we were all chilling there. Right. But then as the father, they said, okay, come up to the fifth floor at 8.15 exactly. And we're hmm. just wait outside the elevator at 8.15. So I was standing there at 8.15. And then at about 8.20, my wife's like walking down the corridor and I approach the table that's separating our corridors. And that's when I, you know, said hi to her, told her good luck. And I gave her the little flower, you know, it's like, yeah, you can do it. Let's go. Let's go. Nice. And, um, but we didn't really, you couldn't really touch the other person, you know, it's still the distance, which the right. nurses would say in English, distance, distance. So, you know, to make sure you don't <laughs> charge through. Uh, so then I saw her sort of walk down the hallway and like disappear down the hallway. And then they told me, um, okay, go downstairs and then come back here at 920. I was like, all right, 920, got wow. it. So they've got a time. And I went down set with Ayumi's parents there, uh, there again. And, um, we sat in the coffee shop and just had coffee and just chatted for an hour. And I was like, okay, got to go back up. So I went up and then, uh, just like within a few minutes, the nurses came and waved me around and the little baby is in uh, an incubator. And, mm. uh, this is for all C-section babies. They put them in an incubator. Right. And so obviously you can't touch the child. He's like cordoned off in this little plastic box. Uh, but you can take photos and they'll take photos of you. And I saw the little baby and I can do a name reveal here. Oh, yeah. Little baby Nico. Nico. Nice. N-I-C-O. Little Nico. So saw a little Nico there. Uh, one thing that surprised me is that I guess for baby ID purposes, as soon as he's born, they write the mother's name and magic marker on his leg. <laughs> so, I, uh, just yeah, case. just in case you don't want to mix up, you don't want a parent trap situation. I've never seen parent trap, but I assume. So uh, it said my wife's full name down the side of his leg, and uh, in black marker. Well, it's a good thing his legs are so yeah, long, exactly, because we got a few katakana characters coming their way. Uh, so then uh, I asked, I was like, "Oh, he's got a tattoo." And they were like, oh, yeah, yeah. And, they, you know, they found it off color and horrible to say such a thing about a baby. <laughs> of course. <laughs> uh, but then I, I took some photos, asked if the health was okay. And they were like, yeah, everything's fine. They gave me the big okay symbol a bunch. Uh, these mm. couple of very helpful nurses, very pleasant. Nice. I took a bunch of photos. They took some photos of me. And then they were like, okay, go away. You know, like they were they're like, okay, we got stuff to do. And they like sort of ushered me away. And I would say that was about two minutes of time that I, I saw the baby sort of firsthand. Was that, was that the picture you sent? Me? Yes. Okay. Um, I s sent nice. a few pictures around to some people and it was just pictures I took. The baby's like behind the plastic, like in the little incubator. Yeah. yeah. We're standing in the hallway just then. So then I forget the breakdown exactly, but I think they said you can go down and come back at. I'm just making it up now, but come back at 9.45. Okay, I'll be back mm. at 9.45. So I went down, came back up, and then uh, they were wheeling my wife in a hospital bed down the hallway at that point. And she was with it. You mm. know, she um, had been under some anesthetic, and uh, it makes you sleepy, but it's not full general anesthetic where you're down for the count. So, of okay. course, after the C-section, they have to sew the person up and finish off that 
stage of the operation. Right. They're wheeling her down the hallway. She's she like looks over and she said, um, oh, yeah, did you see the baby? And we just sort of, you know, talked for just 15 seconds, mm. 30 seconds. And then it's like, good work. And then they just like gave me the nod and then they pushed her on down the hallway. Wow. And uh, that was the end of my interaction. It was like this very scheduled sort of be here, now go, now be here again, now go. And uh, that was like, Hmm. it it was all very clockwork. The other side of it is now suddenly you've got a baby who's a new patient in the hospital. And this, oh, who's this person who wasn't here just a minute ago? We need paperwork (laughs) for this guy. And so they set me off on various tasks around the hospital go to the first floor Hmm. and tell them this and ask for this and hand this form and they'll give you this and you'll take that to the third floor and then talk to this person, go to this desk, you know, with this number and give them this and receive this. Come back up here when you finish. So then I was all over the hospital up and down, um, but it was pretty smooth. uh, No big communication hangups. I just had like a key sentence to say at each station and it got me off to right. the next station. They're kind of expecting you, and then they're like, oh, okay, here yeah. it is. Give and they this. probably do it five or ten times a day, so they're used to gotcha. it. Gotcha. Uh, he got a little hospital card, and um, I signed him up with the pediatrics office in that hospital, and then took the card up to the nursery and all this sort of stuff. And then nice. I was like, well, I think I'm done for today. Because, you know, like everybody's gone, and it's just like baby's away, mother's away. I've done my task. And then I right. uh, went back down to talk to the grandparents, my wife's parents, and I was going to drop some stuff off at their house. So we went outside, you know, we gave each other a hearty congratulations, made it all, got in the cars and I was following them to their house. And who should call me but my wife saying, hmm. you've got to sign something and talk to the doctor. And it was that, <laughs> it was that four line form that was very important for me to get right. in there and see and sign. And I'm glad that they did it for me. But uh, then I was like, well, okay, message your parents because I'm following them to their house and they're going to think something's gone horribly wrong if I just like peel off the other direction. (laughs) So I did that and went back and signed the paper and then went to their house afterward. And they they were mildly panicked because they thought he's been called back to Uh, the hospital for some reason. But um, I set their minds at ease and that was it. That was the long and short of it. Nice. You didn't get any more baby looking time or wife talking time. It's just, here's your little crack. Yeah. Take your picture when you can. Everything was down to about one to two minutes or maybe just a few seconds of interaction. And then they keep on moving. But everybody's really friendly and it's a really nice atmosphere, but it's just Corona restrictions. Like, get them out of here. Then everything beyond that has been... Uh, phone calls, FaceTime, photos going around. Mm. Um, something I did was I, you know, sort of needed to notify, say, like 30 or 40 people, like your family and friends and cousins and right. coworkers and all this. So I sent off a slew of messages yesterday afternoon. And then I realized, <laughs> oh, man, now I've got to deal with like 30 people messaging me back. <laughs> so right. I was on my sofa <laughs> messaging for probably four or five hours, just like back and forth, which I really underestimated right. how much work that would be. But um, got the word out. Some tired. Yeah. Bones. Oh, for sure. <laughs> um, and then what's been interesting in the last day has been, uh, you know, there was day one yesterday. Now it's day two and things have changed. Like the baby's just, you know, growing by leaps and bounds, doing all kinds of new stuff all the time. 
So um, hmm. from day one, the baby was super chill, would just kind of make these little like cooing noises, and that was about it. Uh, and a bit of a bit nice. of a cry, but an uncertain cry. Uh, but then day two, it's like the eyes are open. He's like grasping things, you know, like making use of his hands. Nice. Uh, he can breastfeed, which is amazing to me that like, I mean, all those instincts are there, the reflexes, but sure, the baby's yeah. just um, like drinking straight away. No trouble there. He hmm. sneezed a couple of times, saw that on camera. So that <laughs> reflex is just like working right out of the gate. Uh, and looking around, like sort of, I know he's not seeing much, but day one, right. his eyes were closed basically the entire time. And day two, mm. not only are his eyes open, but they're like moving around and he seems to be checking things out. Yeah, a lot of colors to take in he yeah, wasn't getting exactly. before. I, I can't imagine. It's like, um, I don't know, just like you hear the phrase information overload, but can you imagine for the yeah. baby information overload? Like, oh, seeing <laughs> for the first time. Oh, eating for the first time and just sorting all that stuff out. He's like, what right. is this? But um, <laughs> that it all happens so fast. It's pretty remarkable. No kidding. And one other thing that I think you might look for yourself and you'll be interested in is there, you know, when a baby's born, generally they say, oh, does it look more like the mother or the father? But with a mm. baby who's half Western and half Japanese, you can notice certain things like, oh, well, that is a Japanese feature and that is a Western feature hmm. for for certain, like no question about it. Uh, so Interesting. the baby's got like a helmet of black hair, uh, full on strong black hair. So that's like Japanese trait. He's got that one. That's yeah. from his mother's side of the family. No question <laughs> about it. And then, uh, but he's got, this is kind of a subtle thing, but he has a bridge of the nose. Oh, you can already see it? Yeah, you can, like, uh, my wife, and I think it's a standard sort of Japanese feature generally is that uh, the area between the eyes is quite flat, but right. Westerner has, like, a big hump, like the bridge of the nose there. And hmm. the baby definitely has a bridge of the nose rather huh. than having, like, that flat space. So um, there are things where it's like, oh, yeah, that's that's the nose from my side no question <laughs> about it and uh it's like more than just who does he look like but it's like which hemisphere which... of the world does he have the traits of right interesting yeah you can sort of notice those i mean from the moment he's born almost how has uh ayumi been since the c-section that's that's got a pretty long recovery right yeah it'll be a few weeks um i mean she even on the following day, so today she stood up and walked to the bathroom, and she oh, said really? it was, yeah, quite painful, and she felt like a very old woman doing it, but um, she could walk and get around a bit. Oh, okay. Um, she said that the nurses really encourage her to just go for it because she needs to mm. recover eventually, so you might as well just start trying. They're not afraid of like ripping stitches or anything? I guess not, as long as she takes it easy and wow. paces herself. So they were telling her, yeah, like recovery is best. So just, you know, try to start doing things. Hmm. And she still has, which this surprised me, you know, you get the, the needle into the spine for an epidural and also for whatever the, I don't know what chemical it is, but for the anesthetic that she has it is a needle into the spine. Oh, okay. Here we are like 36 hours later, she still has that same needle in her spine right now. What? <laughs> um, yeah, and it's still connected to the little hose, and then there's a bag that contains the whatever the sedative is or the anesthetic. They leave the needle in the spine. Yeah, and it's still oh, there. Crazy. And 
they've removed like she had a lot of wires coming and going on day one but now on day two all that sort of cleared away it's just this one thing left and it's this yellow bag on the bed next to her and there's a very thin wire that's going into her spine and Hmm. it's just uh pain management still pain relief i guess the c-section is is that bad right after the fact that they they keep that attached for quite a while that's crazy i'm not sure how long it goes but uh, i think for a few more days Jeez, that must be super painful then i had no idea i mean obviously they're cutting her stomach so yeah i've had cuts with stitches before you know and if Mm. you don't have uh, like a painkiller, then as soon as like the, you know, whatever shot they gave you, as soon as that wears off, you're like, this is horrible. Yeah. I've got a big slice of my arm that's stitched together. It's awful. <laughs> uh, so I can't imagine going through all the layers, you know, to get into the womb like that. So yeah, no kidding. They keep her rigged up hmm. on C-section med and uh, she's still, still kicking with that. Um, she also had uh, these devices on uh, that wrapped around each of her legs from the knee down to the foot. And it was to like gently massage her legs constantly to stop blood clots from forming. Oh, interesting. And she had those on all day yesterday. Uh, I'm not sure about through the night, but I guess because she can't really move her legs right. and she's just laid up in the bed that they, uh, they put these sort of bionic looking attachments onto her, onto her legs. Huh? That's pretty much the whole deal. Those are all the stats and info. And now you just sit back and wait for, what, five more days? Four more yeah. days? Now I play the waiting game. They call it day zero when the baby's born, and then they say, come pick them up on day six. So six okay. days later. Uh, we're on day uh, one right now as we record. Right. So I've got another uh, several days, and then I'll go pick them right up. Anything you're doing in the interim that you're preparing the house? I mean, you pretty much set up right yeah we got it all taken care of and i even loaded up the car before the baby was born and took some things over yesterday after mm. you know, the delivery so i think we're set up at her parents house right and, um i think everything's kind of smooth sailing nice i would say the one last thing that a few people have asked me and that uh it's kind of interesting to me is like what does it feel like to be a dad you know <laughs> that question right and i think it's different in this situation because i haven't physically made contact with the baby and i've only laid eyes on him for about two minutes through plastic you know and so um that feeling is more i'd say the predominant feeling like i was saying at the beginning is just the Mm. relief of everything's finished and it all turned out very well and then you're just like oh thank goodness for that and it's a big load off you don't have to think about those things anymore that potentially could go very wrong and be quite life-changing um but uh, all that's off your plate now don't have to think about it anymore um and that's the main thing and then i think all the parenting stuff like the you know feeling of an instinct or the feeling of like something's different about you i feel like once i have the baby and do more of the day-to-day and hold the child and take care of the child i think those things will kick in more but right now it's just i've got like a list of tasks to do and i'm relieved And those are sort of the two (laughs) predominant things in my life day to day. Uh, But it is great to see the photos that come in. My wife takes videos, takes photos and sends them to me. Nice. And um, you should just stare at them forever. You know, just watch the same 10 second clip over and over and over. And you're just like, I can't believe it. Look at this kid. He's like (laughs) figuring things out right in front of my eyes. It's amazing. So I'm amazed by that for sure. Next week is going to be a great week then. Yeah, for sure. Um, I, uh, I feel like, yeah, then you'll get what 
it feels like the parental instinct or something mm. at that time. That's my speculation anyway. Yeah, I bet. All right. But I think that's all I have to say on the topic. Nice. That was, uh, that was very, very nice. Healthy, healthy monologue there. Uh, (laughs) But we shouldn't neglect the 31 week pregnant Moe. Right. 31. Right. And uh, what's your update? So still pregnant. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah. Moe went in for checkup last week and, uh, I guess, you know, like you guys, the baby's still kind of sitting right side up and hasn't flipped again, I should say. Mm-hmm. So the doctors at this hospital actually recommended that Moe go do some acupuncture, which is supposed to aid in allowing the baby to flip easier. And mm. so you guys never went through this, right? No. Yeah, I'm kind of surprised to hear about it. And when she told me they recommended acupuncture, I kind of laughed a little because I was like, what? <laughs> yeah. Uh, but then I looked into it a bit more and it's actually a thing that is, uh, it's pretty successful. It has a pretty high success rate. Uh, so the, the whole process, this acupuncture is called moxibustion, Mm. super weird name. And I'll read what I found about it because if I don't read it, then I'll just butcher it. Moxibustion is a traditional Chinese technique to turn a breech baby to head first, usually around 34 to 36 weeks of pregnancy. Moxa, or mungwort, which are dried sticks of herb, are used to heat specific energy points in the little toes of the pregnant woman's feet. The heat is then absorbed into those points and transferred via energy channels. This all sounds weird, but it seems to work. Uh, Triggering hormone changes which relax the muscles in the uterus to allow extra give and increase the baby's activity, encouraging them to turn. And I can say for sure that the baby has been super active. I don't know if it's just Mm. been because of this recently or just the fact that he's super active, but I feel like he's going to turn soon. Interesting. Um, Yeah, I am generally skeptical of this sort of thing. Ditto. I wonder if when you said that it seems effective, is that just... um, so it's reported to be effective and recommended in a lot of places, or is that like scholarly article that has scientifically found it to be effective? Yeah. Um, I don't know. Mm. I was actually looking for a lot of like real research on it and I couldn't find too much. And so it seems kind of anecdotal where the cases where they've done this, they've reported a 66% increase in babies flipping, mm-hmm. but There's also other factors, and I don't know if they're counting those in. Just like, you know, they also tell the mothers to, like, sleep on their right side or, you know, do the weird yoga poses. So is it, like, all of these things in chorus working together, or is the moxibustion really the the thing that's doing it? And I don't know that anybody has a solid answer for that. Hmm. Yeah, it reminds me of um, a story that I heard from... uh, Jimmy Carter one time when I was just chilling and chatting with Jimmy Carter. Wow. This was in the late seventies. Uh, <laughs> no, he, he was on a talk show and he was talking about, you know, he's got the, I think it's called the Jimmy Carter foundation and they, uh, they're wonderful. They've, you know, nearly eradicated some diseases from the face of the earth and they do mm. this sort of thing in countries all over the place. 
And he gave the example one time of uh, they were trying to help a certain area with farming techniques. And it was a really like underdeveloped area. Hmm. And the people who farmed there, the people who lived and farmed there, they would plant a seed and put a little stone on top of it and then plant an entire field like that. Hmm. And then they would come back a few days later and then they would remove all of the stones and then the seeds would grow into plants uh, to wherever the crop was. And the people, you know, from the Jimmy Carter Foundation said, well, why do you do the stone thing? And they're like, well, that's what we've always done is you put the stone on and it helps the plant grow. And they're like, but that doesn't actually do anything. And hmm. uh, you should really, I mean, you can cut out that step and you can save a lot of effort and you can plant more because you don't have to do this stone step and it'll save right. you a lot of trouble. So try it without the stone and see what happens. And so they tried doing it without the stone and the crop was really weak with no stone on top of the the, the planted seed. Hmm. And so then they looked into it further and they realized it was just something that hadn't been really discovered yet that in this climate, in this soil, with this particular seed, with this you know weather pattern or whatever, it is good for whatever reason to plant a seed and keep all of the sunlight off of it for a few days <laughs> and then allow the sunlight to activate it. And then you get like a really healthy plant out of it. And they learned that, you know, it's like a new thing. And they said, sure. oh, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, keep doing the stone thing for sure. You showed us. <laughs> awesome. And so it's one of those things that sounds like pseudoscience. But then right. for, my, for my money, something might sound like pseudoscience. But the moment that it's shown to be real and shown to be true and proven in a scientific way, then mm. it becomes science. You know, science can absorb this sort of thing. Sure. So oftentimes you'll find something that sounds a bit off or wild or whatever. But then after it's tested and, you know, if it happens to be proven to be real, then at that point it actually becomes science. Mm. Science just envelops the thing. And um, I feel like uh, this is one of those things. So, you know, you never write off anything out of hand, but right. if there's like a lack of evidence or if it is just hearsay or whatever, then you can dismiss it if, you know, many, many years go by that it doesn't show scientific results. So yeah, I'm not, this could be one of those things that I'm, um, I'm definitely not opposed to it. Yeah. Yeah. I'm definitely in the, in the camp of willing to try anything. Let's just, throw everything at the wall and see which one is working. Yeah. That's probably wise. If there's no big risk or no big cost, then um, mm. might as well give it a whirl. And there's also the psychosomatic effect. Maybe there's something to that. If you sure. just believe that it'll happen, your body chemistry reacts in a certain way. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, I imagine it's just that babies flip around that time and then they say, Oh, see, we did the moxibustion and it flipped. What did we tell could you? Could be. Yeah. It could be all of it. I don't know. But um, anyway, I will reserve judgment, but hold my suspicions all the mm. same. Yeah, we'll see. We'll see. But everything else is going good. So I just thought that was an interesting thing that I'd never heard of before. Yeah, uh, nor have I. Were you reading your definition from the what to expect when you're expecting book? I was not. Oh, yeah, because it is in this book. Oh, it is? Yeah. Let me just take a gander at what the book has to say. All right. If you happen to have the what to expect when you're expecting new fifth edition and you turn to page 79, you'll see the entry on moxibustion. Hmm. It says this therapy combines acupuncture with the burning of mugwort, a herb. And interestingly, they, they use a instead of an herb. They say a herb, I guess. Hmm. 
In addition to, or instead of, inserting needles into your skin, the practitioner will burn long sticks of mugwort near certain acupuncture points. Though most scientific research shows a low success rate, many in the complementary community say that moxibustion performed on the outside of the little toe can turn a breech baby. If you're thinking of trying moxibustion or your healthcare provider has suggested giving it a go, look for an acupuncturist who is experienced in the technique. It generally requires multiple sessions starting somewhere between the end of the seventh month and the middle of the eighth month. Yep. The doctor, I think, told her to do it once a week, but no more than twice a week until the baby flips. She should try it every day and see if she can just get them whipping around, whipping. <laughs> spinning around <laughs> constantly. No, uh, I, I think that'll make him more active and kick her more. She's already in yeah. <laughs> quite a bit of pain because of that. Yeah. Well, um, mock Sebastian, everybody look into it. See yep. what you find. And I was, uh, just to go along with updates, I was made aware that a couple of our friends a couple of my friends and Moe's friends had their baby via the, the Ventus, the vacuum delivery. And uh, this was done in Toyama here for one of them. So I was pretty surprised by that. Yeah, it must be pretty common. The stat we saw last week was that it happens in 5% of births, yeah. at least of those mentioned in the book. So yeah, it must be everywhere. And it is so simple. It's just a little suction cup and a vacuum. Mm. So it could be everywhere. Yeah, it does seem more gentle than maybe the clamps. Yeah, yeah. I guess that would be a better alternative. Well, um, this has been a very special episode of the yes. J-Pops. Um, we've got a real live baby on our hands, and we've got one official J-Pop. Who boy! Uh, yep. We're going to forego all of the usual segments and topics and things and just wrap it up here yep thank you for listening today uh we hope this week's episode was informative and interesting if you have any questions or comments please reach out to us either on twitter at jpops podcast or by email at info at the we'll talk to you next time be good to little nico be good to everybody <laughs>